Gary, Greg Mackling, Behind the Glass Jerry, Tristan Field-Jones in for Shanley Vidal. Just looking at the new look, Global News Morning Show. Fancy graphics and stuff. That's the technical term. <laughs> That's the way they rolled it out in the email I got fancy last gra- night. Fancy, graf- fancy graphics and stuff. And stuff. Tons of information for you there. So, uh... Yeah, it's kind of neat if you want to check that out. What did we used to say back in the old days? Channel 9, Cable 12. That's right. CKND. <laughs> CKND, Winnipeg. Channel 9, Cable 12. I was always jealous of the the kids who had access to, I can't remember if it was Channel No, I don't want to say Channel 11. But there was a channel from, I think it was based out of Pembina. Was that North Dakota? Yeah, I think it was, was it KNRR? Was it yes. Fox Station? Yes, and they had access to different cartoons, and you could only get it if you weren't on cable, from what I recall. It was on antenna. Yeah. Yeah, so if you had a big honking antenna, uh, talk to Jeff Braun about it. They had that station over the air easily down in Altona, and what... My mom and my stepdad lived in Boys of Vane, and before they got cable, they got a ton of over-the-air stations from North Dakota because they're only about uh, 15 kilometers as the f- crow flies from the border there. So, As the crow flies? As the crow flies. <laughs> Are you Gandalf the Grey? I love it. I love it. I have, done, I have not heard that in conversation for a long time. Well I'm done. really old, Brett. I love it, man. No, no, you make no apologies for that or justification. In fact, we got to sneak that into conversation more. Eve is already weighing in. KNRR, Channel 12. Nice. Uh, John says, my mom still gets, as he calls it, farmer vision. Farmer vision, I love that. In Enola. Uh, yeah, or uh, peasant vision, as we used to call it in the West oh, End. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> the one show I was really jealous of that they got to see and I couldn't was uh, Voltron. Voltron. It was the they were it was another weird kind of transformer ish okay. toy. Okay. And uh I liked the toys, but I never saw the show. And anybody who had KNR got to see Voltron <laughs> and I just couldn't. And I I grew up always wondering because YouTube wasn't a thing. That's right. So yeah. Oh, Jerry's putting his headphones on. Uh you can watch Voltron on Netflix now. Come on. All like, new episodes. New? Well, what about but I want to see the old ones? I guess I, I, can I don't, know, go I don't know if the old ones are there or not. But, uh, the new ones are. Sure, you can find the old ones if you try hard enough. Now, KCND, Pembina, North Dakota, you needed the antenna for it. So KCND actually was the original, the originating station, so to speak, of CKND. Oh. So the Aspers uh, bought that station, and I don't want to go too deep into it because it's a long, convoluted story, but that's kind of how they got a channel in the first place, was they operated a channel out of Pembina, North Dakota, before lobbying the CRTC to bring a, a third carrier outside of, of CBC and CTV into the marketplace in Winnipeg. And I remember when CKND went on the air, I don't remember what year for sure, but I do know that it was during the Jerry Lewis telethon on Labor Day weekend. That was the very first programming. I can remember my dad and my grandpa up on the roof yelling at each other, that's almost perfect. (laughs) Fortunately, it was nice out that that, uh, September long weekend. Yeah, setting up the antenna so you could get CKND. It was a big deal back in the day. We have the question of the day up already at cjob.com. Thanks for the history lesson, by the way. That was a nice little stroll through memory lane, and uh, our listeners agree with the various text messages we've got. Question of the day, cjob.com. Have you or has someone you know been affected by a stroke? 
Yes, it happened to me is one of your choices. Yes, it happened to a family member or friend or simply no. Question of the day for Mr. Furness. Don't call them first. Get two quotes before you call them. You'll see why. Call Mr. Furness at 204-832-6243. That's the question of the day because as you heard in Global News at 6 o'clock with Jeff Braun, women are more likely than men to die from strokes. This is according to a new report by the Heart and Stroke Foundation, and we will be discussing this in further detail throughout the morning. And this is goes along the same lines as women's heart health, where we are learning more now about how these diseases, how these, you know, these events affect women differently versus how we thought that they did. Uh, women for so long have been horrified, and rightfully so, of cancer, breast cancers in particular, and now we're learning that heart attack and stroke are far more deadly for women than than the, the than doctors and researchers even imagined, and now we're finally getting the numbers to back that up. Yeah, more men are affected by stroke, but the women who are affected by stroke are affected more seriously. Correct, and it's very similar in in heart. Uh, heart attacks and cardiac events as well. So we'll learn more about that at 7.45. We are going to speak with the Heart and Stroke Foundation. And then at 9.06, we're actually going to speak to someone who has had a stroke. We're going to find out. We'll ask the question, what is it like having a stroke? Because uh, one story at globalnews.ca points to a woman woman who just thought she was having a headache, Mm -hmm. just thought she had a bad headache, went to the doctor, she says, I don't usually get headaches, so I figured I should go get this checked out. Doctor figured, well, you're kind of still relatively young, 47 years old. Just gave her, a, prescribed a, a pill for a si- what he deemed a sinus infection. Turns out she was having a stroke, but it took a day for her son to come home and find her having a seizure. My word. So we'll learn more about various stroke stories throughout the morning. Concert announcement after the 7 o'clock news this morning. Excited about this. This is a unique show, so we'll tell you about that. And we also have Blue Bomber season tickets to give away. You and I are going to make a phone call Friday morning. Correct. And this is as simple a contest as it gets. We love all the text messages that we get from our listeners. We're making it very simple for you to get in on this contest. You don't have to text anything but the word I'm about to give you. You don't have to put parentheses you don't have to put quotation marks you don't have to put your name you don't just send in the word text the word the keyword today is touchdown text it to 780-6868-204-780-6868 and you will get a confirmation back from us at 680 CGOB thanking you for entering the contest if something happens you do not get that response back uh, that means you, you had an extra character or something in there so the word today is touchdown you don't need anything else but to text touchdown to 204-780-6868 tour bus with 37 people on board, including a tour guide and the driver, crashed along one of Canada's busiest roads, Highway 401 near Prescott, Ontario, just south of Ottawa, sending multiple people to the hospital. Abigail Beeman was live at the scene and described what it looked like to Donna Friesen on Global National last night. The bus behind me, it's upright in the ditch and has extensive damage to the front. There are windows missing and along the side where it hit and scraped along a rock cut that borders a large portion of this highway. Police say hitting that rock cut is why some of the injuries are so serious. Of the 37 people on board, two dozen are injured. They were taken to a number of hospitals across a two-hour driving span between Kingston and Ottawa. Another challenge while investigating this collision 
decision. The language barrier. Police say only one person on board spoke English. A tour guide. One of the hospitals brought in a Mandarin interpreter to help. Abigail, describe the area where this happened. What's the landscape like? Well, this is a very rural area. It's outside a small town and about an hour south of Ottawa. And it was really all hands on deck for the first responders who came to help. Even the media relations officer wasn't taking calls from the media at first because she was administering first aid herself, saying she's never seen so many casualties at a crash scene. We spoke to one man who lives nearby and came upon the crash shortly after it happened. It sideswiped the rock cut. The bus went off the road and you can see the the limestone on the far side and the bus scraped along the limestone and probably the people sitting on that side of the bus were seriously injured. There's still no word on what exactly caused this bus to go off the road and collide with the rock face. Police said in an update last night that four people had very serious life-threatening injuries while 20 people were treated for non-life-threatening injuries. Constable Suzanne Runciman of the Ontario Provincial Police indicated the bus was operated by a Massachusetts-based tour company when it hit a rock cut and went off the highway. There are no fatalities at this point and what caused the bus to veer off course is still under investigation. The past Passengers on the bus are tourists from China. And the collision occurred just after 2.30 in the afternoon yesterday. Officers are not sure when that section of the highway will completely reopen. Tell me, me, oh, me, oh, I wasn't that hard. If you play that song long enough, I think they talk about hockey underneath the kitchen table, don't they? The old, the old Tomcat's <laughs> talking about the hockey, yeah. <laughs> Irish Rover is Greg Mackling, Brett McGarry. And the morning crew in the studio this morning. Slightly modified, SLV will be back tomorrow. Shadowly Vidal, Tristan Field-Jones here with us for one more day. And Krishna Mel in for Kelly Moore for one more day. Yes, correct? That is correct. Kelly will be back tomorrow. Jeff Braun is here. Uh, so let's just throw it out here. Was the cost of the Whiteout Street parties worth it? Let's go to the least biggest sports fan in the group, Tristan Field-Jones. <laughs> Woo! Uh, you know, yes, absolutely. Because this is not just about sports. This is far bigger than the Jets. This is far bigger than hockey. This is, um, and I mean, I know we played clips of Dana Spiring saying that there were millions of people across North America that saw what was happening in Winnipeg. I can I can kind of see the concern when it comes to the costs, and yeah, I mean, you, you can't you can't always avoid that, but ultimately, it's just. This really put Winnipeg on the map. I don't know if any other cities were doing anything of this scale. So ultimately, was it worth it? Yeah, I think so. Maybe a little more organization would be nice next time. But yeah. Christian? We shouldn't have any nice things. <laughs> we shouldn't spend any money. <laughs> I th- See, I, I look on TV and you see these, you know, we go back to 04 and you look at the Red Mile in Calgary. And you look at, even last night, the fans outside in Washington, the huge crowds there. The difference is those are public squares, and what we have to do is shut down streets. But overall, like Tristan said, it's a learning experience that we can maybe find ways to make it not as expensive next year. But if you've got a little bit extra in your budget to do something that is for civic pride and to do something that bolsters your city that's what you have that money for right there's a lot of small projects we do in the city that a lot of people don't notice 
Uh, everyone noticed this, and the number of people watching, I don't know how you can put a money figure on the free advertising, whatever they you can't. That's, I mean, that's debatable. They're trying to do it. They're trying that's to a, put a number that's on That's a spin, it. but the reality is people are looking at Winnipeg and saying, oh, well, that's cool. That's cool. Are they going to now come here? No, but. There were lots of people who did. Exactly. There were plenty of people who did. Most the of them games. were expats, yeah. yes. But it's painted Winnipeg in a different light. It, it, and then once again, that's my opinion. Jeff Braun? Oh, yeah. I mean, because uh, what? Because True North paid half of it anyways. So it cost the city a million dollars just over? Roughly. Big whoop. That's in the, It's a drop in the bucket of what goes in and out of City it's Hall. It's not like roads aren't getting paved because yeah, we had a exactly. white street party. Figure it out. I mean, that's, that's, it's, to me, it's a non-issue. It was, like, it's a no-brainer. Sure. What's um, Winnipeg uh, Tourism paying for all those commercials they're running right now? Mm-hmm. They've got a campaign going on. They're buying airtime on all kinds of TV stations and radio stations. How much are they spending on that? I think that this right here, the Whiteout Parties, is a much better advertising campaign than anything they could have put together. Yeah, 120,000 people were attracted to these parties. One thing I'm still trying to figure out, Greg, and you're better with numbers than I am on this. The the cost that the city paid in these parties, which was just under a million dollars, um, does that include the overtime cost to the Winnipeg police, which was 800000 It seems to be the $800,000, the $150,000 that transit uh, had to pay, and then some other miscellaneous. But that seems to be where that million-dollar number comes from for the city expenditures. And then True North paid about a million bucks. They got some of that back with the beer sales they made on the street, uh, but they didn't get all their money back. And, you know... And white T-shirts. Uh, well, there's <laughs> the conversation. You daren't... You know, you didn't go down to those parties without something with a Jets logo on it, right? So who made money on all the merchandise? Well, and they had nine home games of which to generate revenue that they weren't getting in past seasons. Well, right? of course. Yeah. Well, that's the business model. That's why they're in business. They can, to they can handle this team. loss because they've got those nine extra home games of revenue. But are they obligated to put on a party for no, people who don't buy tickets no. to their games? I would suggest that, okay, let's say there was no street party on a street or in a public square or anything. They would have had to shell out quite a bit for police overtime just to handle people coming out of their homes and bars and gathering Somewhere. On their own, without anybody organizing it whatsoever. Yeah, probably People would have gone to Portage and Maine, and yeah. they would have had to shut that down. And So there you go. That would have cost police overtime easily. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, and I get that the cost is tough for the Winnipeg police. And it, it does present this, this difficult situation where the police are saying, we can't do this without long-term planning. But then mm-hmm. you have Donnelly pointing out, which is what really is the obvious, is that how are we supposed to plan long-term when they don't release the schedule until within days before this happens? Right. And this was also the first time that we that the city saw something like this, and I don't know that uh, that without those parties that Winnipeg would have gotten such or as much exposure as they did. So even though the cost sucks and yeah, it was difficult to me, I see it as a long term investment in the future of our city. <laughs> Here's the analogy I put out on Twitter last night, Brett. You'll remember grapes on Main Industry nights. Oh yeah, you know two twenty five a drink and Sunday sh- nights. Yep, Sunday nights you show up oh, about nine o'clock and two twenty five a drink. That sounds fantastic. Load me up. You know what? I'm buying for everyone. And then at the end of the night, around 1.30, the bill comes, <laughs> and nobody's got any money. 
Nobody's got any money for a tip, that's and you got you no leave. money to take a cab home. That's why you're the first friend to leave the party. Right? <laughs> Jeff knows the, the, the thing. But I was there Put all too often. On the table and I was there all too often at the beginning <laughs> of the night when everybody thought this was the best idea ever, and then by the end of the night, it's like, oh, my gosh, who's going to pay for this? It was the best thing that's happened to Winnipeg since the Jets came back, and... That was the best thing that happened, who knows since when, in terms of putting Winnipeg on the map. Uh, I know I'm going to be accused of being a hockey fan, and of course anything that True North does is a good thing, and that anything associated with the Jets is good. They messed up on several fronts with these parties, as mm-hmm. far as I'm but concerned, but it was still, a learning experience. Yeah. They'll be better next exactly. time, and I dare anybody to show me anything that's done any better for Winnipeg's pride, community, and sense of self-worth. What is the alternative to having the whiteout party downtown? If it's if it costs that much, is there somewhere else we could do it? We have a listener here who said too bad it wasn't at the Forks, but there is there the capacity there to, to have 20,000 people? Uh, you'd think so. Several with, with thousand, uh, for sure. Well, Canada Day, they attract yeah. tens of thousands of people. Is there still you'd room still for have, that, though? You'd still have to oh, add yeah. buses for the extra transit, yeah. and you'd have to hire a bunch of police to you'd still police need everything. So you still need to put fencing When you look yeah. at the Canada Summer Games, how they organized it there with the concerts, you'd have it in that same spot in terms of a live stream. It could You could do both, right? If you want to take some of the load off downtown, you could have an alternate viewing place at the Forks or at Assiniboine Park like they did with the Tragically Hip concert there. Part of the attraction, though, for people that didn't have tickets to the games was that it was like they were at the game. It was You're just, right there. You're basically in the lobby of the arena. It was just an extension of the building, and that's a that's just something that was created for the benefit of right. people who didn't have tickets to And it's to downtown. The there are a lot of bars Correct. around. Portage of Maine is right there, which a couple times during the playoffs, people gathered at Portage Maine, and it was a spectacle. I'll go right back to the very first night of playoffs, walking through the Skywalk system. I heard someone, overheard someone say, this is what revitalization looks like to me. And in essence, that sums it up for me. We're trying to get people downtown. Correct. And talk to the businesses downtown. Ask if they benefited. Talk to the hotels. And I know they're going to do this. I know several dozen people who came to Winnipeg, back to Winnipeg from where they live now. And I'm sure you got texts from people. Oh, from everywhere. From everywhere. This changed Winnipeg's image in a lot of people's eyes. You, you, you can't put a dollar well, figure ha- on that. How many people did we interview throughout the course of the Jets playoff run that were Winnipeggers in China, mm-hmm. Winnipeggers in BC and Alberta? And I mean, I remember seeing a story where there were whiteout, small whiteout parties in bars in Calgary and Vancouver and Toronto. Yeah, exactly. So it's just, uh, it's, it's. I mean, yes, it costs a lot, but sometimes you have to spend money to make. Money. Money, and I guarantee you there are people out there who look at this and think, you know, that's pretty cool. And, and like Jerry said, they spend money on these tourism ads. What better advertising could you have for the city than what we saw over the last couple yeah. months? TV yeah, ad, yeah. put 30 seconds of the Whiteout Street Party, come to Winnipeg, boom. Yeah, especially when you have that being broadcast on NBC, mm-hmm. uh, which is being exposed to a much larger audience than here in Canada. Although, may, hang on a second. The numbers, <laughs> the actual numbers are probably quite similar, Brad, yeah, in terms of physical I, numbers, right? Yeah, as, I, as I thought about the American hockey audience, it's probably comparable to Canada's hockey audience because... Not a lot, of, not a ton of hockey fans. Uh, and the last point I'll make on this is we were talking the other day about how when you phone the cops, your house has been broken into and they don't come or they don't come for a week. 
the one time you actually need them. You know what? This was the one time where uh, I'm actually drawing on police resources. I think as a taxpayer, I'm entitled. And, and, you know, I don't want to sound like the former liberal cabinet minister. I'm entitled to my entitlements. But you know what? As a taxpayer, I think uh, I got my money's worth. Shall we introduce our next guest? Let's do it. All right. We have on the line with us Ashley Richard, who is working with Taking It Global uh, on an exciting youth grants program. And she joins us now live on 680 CJOB. Ashley, good morning to you. Hello. Uh, So uh, first of all, Taking It Global. Um, Tell us about that. Taking it global. So I work for them and they're a really amazing not-for-profit based out of Toronto, uh, all centered around youth empowerment and social innovation. So you've got some rising youth community service grants uh, available. Tell us about these grants and what are they applicable for? Who can, who can apply for them? So the Rising Youth Grants, they're really exciting. It's all centered around community volunteerism and anybody aged 15 to 30 who has an idea where they want to empower their community or bring anything positive that can impact their community can apply. So what kinds of things will get these young people their grants? Oh, it can be anything. We've had such a broad range of ideas from across Canada already. Um, We've had people bringing Spirit Week to their high school, planting community gardens, doing community cleanups. Uh, As long as they can explain how it can positively impact their community, uh, we're willing to fund that idea. So is this the first year for this program? It is, yes. So it'll be running from now until 2020. Wow. So can people uh, see uh, and apply online, see uh, uh, some of the the qualifications and and what they need to do? How how do we get involved? Definitely. So you can either visit risingyouth.ca or email uh, funding at takingitglobal.org. And all of the eligibility requirements are online or anybody can contact me for any details. So you, one of the things that you wanted to talk about was the importance of community volunteerism. So why is that important to you? I think that there's a lot that can come out of community volunteerism. Uh, when someone's passionate about an idea, you never know the impact that that can spark upon a community. And that's what's so powerful about these micro-grants. Um, any idea, we don't know what ripple effect that's going to cause. And we're going to be kind of planting these seeds across Canada and seeing what can grow from that. So just being able to kind of be part of this program has been really exciting for me. So I think we can all agree that youth have become extra involved in terms of community and innovation, in terms of community involvement, volunteerism. I think that's uh, something that's as big a deal now as it's ever been. How old do you have to be to get involved? What age groups are are eligible to apply for this grant, Ashley? Uh, Any youth that's aged 15 to 30 is eligible for these grants. And uh, how does one do that? Where do they go? Uh, Risingyouth.ca All right. Ashley Richard, Youth Engagement Activator with Rising Youth, Taking It Global. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. Thank you so much.
Once again, risingyouth.ca is the website, and you can also check out takingitglobal.org. It's time for Breakfast with the Bombers, brought to you by the Cooperators. Find an advisor at cooperators.ca, a better place for you. One of the one of the standout performers in Friday night's Winnipeg Blue Bomber preseason opener, which saw the Bombers defeat a team of players dressed as Edmonton Eskimos because there was only <laughs> five regulars in the lineup. So they were a facsimile of the Edmonton Eskimos. Uh, the Bombers still came out on top 33-13. Uh, backup quarterback contender Chris Strevler, a young man who played college ball in South Dakota, looked really good, Brett. Yeah, we spoke with him a few weeks back uh, in this segment. In fact, he was a genuinely cool guy, nice guy. We both had just a good feeling about him, a hunch, because uh, we remarked, he, oh, I certainly remarked that he looked like Thor from the Marvel <laughs> Cinematic Universe. And after Friday's 10 for 10 performance, it's clear he certainly packs a uh, bit of a hammer punch. Here's 680 CJOB's Bob Irving in conversation with Chris Streveler. Well, Chris, I know you are moving on to the game in BC on Friday night, but let's go back to last Friday just for a couple of minutes. Um, 10 for 10, 140 yards. Have you have you put that away or are you going to keep it in your in the back of your mind for a while? No, I mean, I, I've put that away. You know, that we, we talked about it after the game and just said, yeah, you get 24 hours with a loss or a win and um, you know, you just try to you, you uh, build on the good things and learn from the things that didn't go as well as you would have liked. So, you know, after after that game's over and you watch the film, you 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 know, you build on the good things and learn from the bad things, and then on to the next week of practice. So that's that's long in the past now. It was a couple of days ago, but it seems like it was forever ago because I'm on to film this afternoon and practice tomorrow. So, one more question on it then: What pleased you the most about what you did against Edmonton? I mean. I, I don't know if it was personal. It just it just felt good to get out there with a team in a team setting. I mean, against another against another team, you know, getting able to step in the huddle and and you know communicate with guys. It's it's just different in a game than it is in practice with the coaches behind you and stuff. When you're out there, you're you're in control of everything. And so it was just it was just a really great experience to get out there with these guys that you've been working with for for three weeks now and getting to know and um, get to be in an actual game setting with them. So I don't really know if there was one thing that. You know, pleased me about the game, but you know it was just really, really a fun experience to get out there with those guys in a in a really competitive setting. I know your dad and your sister were here. You told me that. Uh, did they say anything to you after the game? Uh, good job, I guess. <laughs> I mean, you know, they're just there there for support, and I think they kind of wanted to come up and see see what was going on in Winnipeg. So uh, I know my sister had never been to Canada, so it was kind of cool for her to get up here, and um, you know, it was just great to have them up here first first game and stuff like that so they could they could see it and be a part of it and um, it was it was really exciting to have them up here got to spend some time with them after the game the, the following days afterwards so it was it was fun to have them up here there's so much new about this game the wider field the motion the extra player how comfortable do you feel with all that now I think it's just uh, a comfort level that continues to build every day. You know, it's not one thing where one day you just wake up and say, all right, I'm, I'm comfortable now. You know what I mean? And with the amount of things that we do offensively, it's you're continually pushing yourself and, and learning more. And it's every day there's new things. So you always got to be locked in and, and ready to go. And, um, you know, so I don't know. Like I said, I don't know if one day I'll ever just roll out of bed and say, hey, I'm really comfortable with everything because you, you got to you want to push yourself and the coaches push you push you to, to the limit here so um, it's that's a really fun experience though it's a fun challenge and um, to get to learn new things every single day and, and just grow with the process um, it's been it's fun you've got quite the beard growing there's some history in that tell me that story 
Yeah, so um, I, I don't really remember how it started. I think uh, I think one one fall camp I just got lazy and didn't shave it, and then it got pretty gross, and the team liked it. So um, I grew it out my junior year and my senior year, and then my senior year um, I dyed it black for the playoffs with <laughs> with every other te- every other player on the team that had facial hair. They all dyed it black. So. Uh, so a couple of coaches did too as well, so it was it was just a really fun deal, and I don't know, I guess the teammates just just loved having a quarterback that looked disgusting. I mean, it was really really long and gross, and um, so I kept that for a while, and um, I don't know, I just it was just kind of a fun thing. One more question about being here: you could have waited around and had some NFL looks and all the rest of it, but you decided to come here. Was there one thing in particular that convinced you? You know, I think I don't know if there was one thing in particular. Just the entire experience of getting to, getting to come up here for minicamp and and meet meet the players and meet the coaches and stuff, and you know, just get to get to talk to them. And it was just the, the overall um, chance to just have an opportunity to come somewhere and 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 compete. You know, with the NFL stuff, it was you know kind of lukewarm with a tryout, and you know maybe you know probably don't low chance of getting invited to camp. Um, and, you know, here it was, hey, you know, come up and, and come into camp and have a legit chance to compete. And, you know, that's really all you can ask for. Someone in my, in my position or, you know, any rookie, you just want a chance to compete. And um, so that's what, you know, they said I could get here and that's all you can ask for. And so that was really just the biggest thing. And, and then getting to talk to um, Buck and, and Coach Lapo, I mean, it was just those guys, I mean, they – They've taught me so much just even the last three weeks. So just getting to meet those guys, I just felt really good about what was going on up here. So far, so good, eh? Definitely, yeah. I mean, I, like I said, it's a process. Every single day you got to learn and you got to get better. So, um, you know, it's been, it's been going well, but it needs to just continue to progress and, and need to continue to learn and get better. Thanks, Chris. Good luck in Vancouver. All right. Thank you very much. That's the legend himself, 680 CJOB's voice of the Blue Bombers, Bob Irving, with backup quarterback candidate Chris Strebler took a gigantic step last Friday night in becoming backup to Matt Nichols with the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. We'll see how he performs Friday night against the BC Lions in the second and final preseason game of the season. Brett and I think uh, we informally began the Chris Strevler fan club a few weeks ago here on 680 CJOB. We might want to formalize that. We might want to initiate talks with the Patrick Line fan club based on Chris Strevler's uh, facial hair. I know that Line has shaved his uh, at, at least for now, yeah. but uh, perhaps uh, the line A beard will be back at some point, and we can uh, have some, uh, you know, some synergies with the Patrick Line fan club as we uh, get the Chris Trevler fan club up and running, and maybe a showdown too between oh. the two of them. Oh, I know there's a lot of people that don't want that, but <laughs> I think that would be awesome. <laughs> don't forget, by the way, if you want a chance to win season tickets for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. All you got to do is text one word to 204-780-6868. Today's keyword is touchdown. So when you type up 204-780-6868, we don't want you to put your name. We don't want you to add any other details, just the word touchdown. That will trigger the auto reply if you send it and you don't get the auto reply. Doesn't necessarily mean you did something wrong. For example, Scott texted us to say, hey, I sent the text and I didn't get a reply. What's going on? So I checked. Sure enough, we sent the reply, but he didn't get it for some reason. But don't worry, Scott, you're in. But if you only include the word touchdown, you're into the contest. 
No problem. All one word, no hyphens, no spaces. Don't put any football icons or anything. Just touchdown to 204 780 And uh, Brett and I could be calling you on Friday morning to let you know that you will be going to each and every Blue Bomber game on us here at 680 CGOB. I'm Greg Mackling. He's Brett McGarry. And the 2018 stroke report is out. And the headline and really the information of concern that we'll be talking about this morning, stroke disproportionately affects women. More women die of stroke. Women have worse outcomes after a stroke and more women are living with the effects of a stroke and they face more challenges as they recover. We're joined now live on 680 CJOB by Heart and Stroke spokesperson, Dr. Sapita Puyanya. Joining us live on 680 CJOB, Dr. Puyanya, good morning to you. Good morning. So this report, the fact that this is worse news for, it's bad news for women, um, is this a surprise, do you think, to the general public that that it's, that women are one more, one third more likely to die of stroke than men? It may be a surprise. Not a lot of people are aware of this fact. So why is it that women are, we know that more men are affected by stroke, but women seem to be more adversely affected. Why is that? That's right. There are many factors here. First of all, women get, tend to have more severe strokes. Uh, there are many reasons for that. One of the reasons could be women get a stroke sometimes in the older age. Elderly women are prone to stroke and they, they face the greatest stroke burden. And as you get older, um, unfortunately, the results of the stroke are going to be harder and the disability is going to be more, uh, more pronounced. And the other reason could be, as women, um, we don't usually put our health at the first line. Women are very busy juggling between work, family, community, and they don't take care of themselves. They are not aware of the risk factors for a stroke, and they are not aware of the signs of a stroke. Uh, Therefore, they don't present to emergency departments on a timely manner, and they're going to miss some of the important treatment that they should be provided as an urgent care like clot busters or other treatments. And unfortunately, they are left with severe disabilities after a stroke because they don't get these treatments on time. Dr. Puyani, I know that with regard to cardiac disease and uh, cardiac events, the research is similar. And part of the research that we're discovering now is faults in the research that we've been doing for decades with regard to stroke and with regard to cardiac. That's right. So... In the past, heart disease and stroke were seen as men's diseases. Research was based on the incorrect assumption that what worked for a man would work for a woman. We are now learning how women's physiology and hormonal changes put them at risk for heart disease and stroke in ways that are different than men. Now this knowledge needs to be transferred and translated to better diagnostic treatment and support that women may need in the community. One of the things that's jumping out of me, out of me here as uh, we look at the, the summary from the Heart and Stroke Foundation, there is a higher risk of marriage breakup post-stroke if it is the woman who has the stroke. What's going on there? That's right. That's right. That's true. Again, it's one of the shocking news by this report. Um, unfortunately, uh, that's what happens. A lot of times when a man has a stroke, and we see it in real life every day, uh, there are the wives, daughters, and mothers who take these um, men home after a stroke and take care of them as the caregiver. 
but the reciprocal is not always true for women having a stroke. And also the other factor of that uh, that causes a lot of women having difficulty going home after a stroke is that a lot of them are older and they don't have anyone going home to. Um, and as a result of that, twice as many women as men uh, end up going to their personal care home or long-term care after a stroke. So we have, I think, have done a great job, and I credit the folks at Heart and Stroke Foundation for doing a great job in getting FAST, FAST, the signs of stroke, out there for the public. But this report suggests that women uh, are not aware of the signs of stroke and aren't necessarily aware of FAST. That's right. A lot of women are not aware of the critical FAST signs, which is weakness in the face, weakness in the arm, speech problem, and time. Time is the important issue here. We need to be aware of those signs and present to the hospitals on time. Also, women tend to not to take care of themselves in regards to stroke risk factors. As I said, they are not aware of their other risk factors, like if they are taking oral contraception or if they are taking hormone replacement therapy right after menopause, they may be at risk for stroke. And elderly women, because age is a very important risk factor for stroke. So generally, we suggest women to be aware of those risk factors, to present to their healthcare professionals and take their medication on time and have a uh, generally healthy lifestyle with exercise, avoid smoking and monitoring the risk factors. Dr. Puyanya, what if one doesn't know, like for example, globalnews.ca did a story on a woman, 47-year-old woman who just thought she had a headache. She went to the doctor because headaches for her were unusual. Doctor said, well, it's probably just a sinus infection. Here's some pills. And then it was, it took her 24 hours to eventually have a seizure and get taken to the hospital. So she went to a doctor and still didn't get, it still didn't get caught. Um, well, I'm not sure about that particular case. There may be there may be presentations for a stroke that are easy to be missed in the early stages. So there is no one to blame here. But as long as that person takes it seriously, when she understands that, well, this is not a regular headache, and go back to the emergency department after a couple of hours and instead of wasting time and waiting for 24 hours, that may be uh, able to save him or help her to to, um, to get uh, enough attention. Because sometimes it happens, you know, not every migraine is a stroke, not every headache is a stroke. It's a matter of taking it seriously um, when it happens. When you think you're having a stroke, should you be calling an ambulance? That's right, 911 right away. All right, Dr. Sapita Puyanya, Heart and Stroke Foundation, thank you very much for joining us this morning on 680 CJOB. My pleasure. Ontario election just around the corner, and Premier Kathleen Wynne now saying, should she win, <laughs> that she would keep her... She would, she would keep her spot, I guess, keep her seat at the very least, mm-hmm. and uh, Doug Ford now getting sued. So we're joined now by David Aiken, who is Chief Political Correspondent for Global News, joins us live on 680 CJOB. David Aiken, how are you this morning? Uh, last time I was on with you guys, I think we were dancing or doing something similar like that. Now, instead of dancing, my head is just spinning with what's going on with the progressive conservative leader, Doug Ford, and and uh, and a liberal leader, Kathleen Wynne. And when you say she'll stay on, she she won't, or when she thinks she can win, she, she, she hasn't changed her mind about, like, losing government. She's still saying... We ain't going to win government, but she's saying she will stay on in her seat, which is a Toronto seat, a seat called Don Valley West. 
Um, and she's apparently pretty popular with her own local constituents. So, um, so she'll be in the legislature and, you know, you can uh, cheer or jeer for her as you see fit in the legislature if she wins. And that's still a big if. Uh, you know, that seat is definitely in play. And the conservatives are, uh, if they're not nipping at her heels, they're uh, they're tied, and she may lose her seat. Let's talk about the Doug Ford suit in just a moment. How has the reaction been? I know how it's been across the country. Uh, the reaction to Kathleen's win, uh, Kathleen Wynne's pronouncement on Saturday that she will not win this election and form a government. How have people in Ontario taken that sort of stance, David? Well, it depends on what side of the political ledger you're on. Uh, certainly in public, liberals, liberal candidates are standing up and saying, uh, oh, what a noble thing to do, and she's being honest, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I know there are a lot of liberal volunteers and canvassers who feel like they've been punched in the gut. They've been told all for the last week, let's go, one final push to the finish line, and here their leader has given up. One candidate, one liberal candidate, in a riding that he's not going to win. It's a hardcore conservative riding. But there's a liberal candidate who has already said, uh, I'll run for leader. So this is weird. We have a leadership race already starting even before the election is over. So that's the liberal side. And then the conservatives and the Democrats, and to be honest, with sort of the pundit class is going, what stunning arrogance from the liberals to, to try to pitch to voters that only the Liberal Party can be trusted with a majority. And in Kathleen Wynne's formulation, uh, neither the other two parties can be trusted with a majority. And therefore, you need the Liberals in order to rein them in. Uh, this is a party that two-thirds, of two-thirds, three-quarters of Ontarians say, we want change. We don't want them in charge. And Kathleen Wynne is trying to make the pitch, uh, let us still have the balance of power because we're the only ones that can be trusted with power as I say, stunning arrogance from uh, if you're on the conservative or New Democrat side. So Doug Ford now being sued just days yeah. before the election. What is this lawsuit? Okay, so here's the lawsuit. It was just filed Friday. Hmm, isn't that interesting timing? And it was filed by Doug's uh, sister-in-law, the widow of Rob Ford. Her name is Renata Ford. Uh, at the heart of the lawsuit is the claim that, uh, that Doug Ford is in breach of trust uh, various covenants involving uh, Rob Ford's estate. So Renata, that's the widow of Rob Ford, is saying that, first of all, Doug Ford is a lousy businessman. He, When he inherited his dad's company, a, a, a labeling company, he ran it into the ground. It's lost money for six years in a row. He paid himself an inflated salary when he never deserved it. His education and business experience are, are uh, not up to the snuff. And, uh, and uh, she ought to get $16.5 million dollars. So again, this comes on Friday. It's an interesting time to drop this particular lawsuit. Mm -hmm. uh, the Ford campaign says that this is all nonsense. Uh, it's ridiculous. This is Renata's lawyers. Essentially, they've been threatening to drop this lawsuit in the middle of the campaign unless he'd paid her some money, and he did not. We have R Rob and Doug's mom, who is the grandmother of Renata's children, siding with Doug against Renata. Oh Doug's wife has jumped in versus Renata. How does this all play out in the campaign trail? Just quickly, Ford Nation is, is the core support of Rob and Doug Ford. And I suspect that in this spat, they're siding with Doug. But that's just a core of the PC support. There's a lot of people who are, who've been saying we're voting progressive conservative just to get rid of Kathleen Wynne. Doug Ford has been their change agent. And now, if they see this family squabble, maybe they hesitate. Maybe they think about going NDP because their motive is get rid of win. Uh, that could hurt. And here's the other thing. We got today, full day of campaigning, tomorrow, and that's it. 
And now Doug Ford is going to spend the last two days of campaigning talking about this lawsuit rather than talking about what he likes to talk about, which is the radical NDP activists he thinks will wreck Queen's Park. It could be enough of an opening for the NDP maybe to gain enough seats. The, the polls show the very close. The NDP does need a few more percentage po- points. But in a close election, you know, the, this lawsuit's a wild card. It may have little effect or it just might have enough to help the NDP. All right. Thank you for this, David, as uh, Carol Burnett might say. So glad we had this time together. We'll catch up with you. <laughs> we'll catch up with you again soon. Okay. Thanks, guys. That is David Aiken, Chief Political Correspondent for Global News, joining us live this morning on 680 CJOB. The death toll from Guatemala's volcano of fire eruption has risen to 69 people. Martin Unsworth, Professor of Physics, Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at the University of Alberta, joins us now. Good morning, Martin. How are you today? Thanks. Oh, and just for those who are listening now live with us, uh, sometimes we have, and Martin, you probably can't hear this on your end, but sometimes we have some digital, call it artifact, echo, I don't know, the ghost in the machine. So it, Martin just sounded like, I don't know, Zool from Ghostbusters? Mm-hmm. Martin, did you? are you a fan of Ghostbusters? Oh, it's a long time since I've watched that, but yeah, it's a pretty interesting show. Well, you sounded like Zool for a moment there, so but you sound <laughs> it, it sounds okay now. Our digital phone is functioning again. Fancy that digital technology is supposed to be an improvement, but mm. half the time it's just stick with analog. Certainly anyway. not infallible. Uh, this is we're really witnessing the history of the world uh, as it may have been before human beings with the eruptions in Hawaii and now, of course, in Guatemala. Are both these? Volcanoes on the infamous Pacific Ring of Fire, Professor Unsworth? Well, the, the volcano in Guatemala is on the Ring of Fire. That's the ring, as you just said, goes right around the Pacific. But Hawaii is actually um, an unusual volcano because it's not on the edge of one of the Earth's tectonic plates. It actually sits right in the middle. So, you know, what's actually causing them is, is really quite different. You know, Hawaii is actually this big jet of hot rock that's coming up from, from deep in the Earth and sort of burning a hole, if you like, in the plate. So that's kind of why the volcanoes are really different in lots of ways, as we've been seeing. Now, Martin, why do they call this uh, volcano in Guatemala the volcano of fire? I mean, and forgive me if this is an odd question, but don't volcanoes and fire kind of go hand in hand? That's a good observation, but the one in Guatemala, this has been by far in history Guatemala's most active volcano. And prior to Sunday, I mean, it has been fairly active. You know, there's been multiple explosions a day you know, firing ash a few kilometers, but no more into the air. And historically, you know, there's been lava flows come down from it. But the eruption on Sunday was, you know, many times larger than I think we've seen in the last, probably the last hundred years. So are the activities of volcanoes, uh, do they remain a mystery somewhat? Are they easier to predict than earthquakes? Uh, Can you unravel that for us a little bit? Well, predicting earthquakes and volcanoes, I mean, there's some similarities and some differences. I mean, earthquakes, one of the big problems is we can't look under the ground very easily and actually know where it's going to break. But most volcanoes, you know, eruptions come from the top of a pointed mountain that we know. So, you know, there's no surprise that the eruption came on Fuego on Sunday, but it was just the size. You know, the last 10, 20 years, the eruptions from there, you know, there's been columns of ash, there's been a few rocks flying but this eruption on Sunday formed what was called a pyroclastic flow. People in the media said it was initially a lava flow, but it was actually a pyroclastic flow, which is like an avalanche of hot rock and gas 
and that comes down the volcano three or four hundred kilometers per hour. So there's simply no way when it starts you can run out of the way or even drive. And, you know, the gas is very hot, and that's what basically unfortunately killed so many people. How hot would the surrounding terrain be? Like, would it be safe to be in that area uh, as far as temperature goes? Well, the ground is kind of normal temperature until this hot gas comes down, and the gas can be at three or 400 centigrade. So, you know, some of the reports are saying even after a sort of day, you know, the ash there, the ground is still hot. The rescuers' boots were being burned. So it takes a while to cool down. It's actually a pyroclastic flow. People may have seen, you know, been to Italy at Pompeii. You know, that's the Italian city, the Roman city that was buried in AD 79. That was a pyroclastic flow. And it came down from Vesuvius really without warning and just simply buried everything in its path. Now, I think a lot of us can understand why you might want to live in Hawaii. Uh, Those of us living on the prairies probably dream of that. And a lot of the folks that live uh, in those areas uh, where there is notorious volcanic activity, they acknowledge that, yeah, it's a little bit of a risk living here. Is it the the same in in Guatemala? Is there a risk-reward in terms of living on the sides of these uh, active volcanoes? That's actually a good comparison. I was actually last week talking to several several radio stations about Hawaii, you know, and the people there, you know, are actually living on an active volcano, you know, and every time there's these lava flows, you know, people debate, well, you know, should they really be allowed to do that? But in Central America and lots of developing countries, people live close to volcanoes because the soil is good for agriculture. So, you know, this is the same through, you know, Indonesia, the Philippines, through most of Central America and into, you know, Bolivia, Peru and those countries in the Andes. So people are there because the, you know, the farming is good. Often those countries are quite overcrowded, spaces at a premium. And, you know, they've lived there for a while, often, you know, and nothing too serious has happened. So it's unfortunate there's a necessity for, you know, just for subsistence agriculture to be close to these large mountains. And unfortunately, sometimes it's um, too close. Is there anything that can be used to stop uh, lava flow or act as a barrier? Or do you just have to get out of its way? You really have to get out of the way. I mean, with a pyroclastic flow, it's going so fast, there's no way you could stop that. With a lava flow like in Hawaii, people have tried lots of different strategies for diverting them. So, for example, there was an eruption in Iceland in the 70s where the lava flow was about to block the harbor on a small island. And they pumped seawater onto it for, for months, basically, to try and cool it and slow it down. And it's not clear whether it actually achieved anything. It didn't block the harbor in the end. I think at Mount Etna in Italy, they've tried a number of times using explosives to try and divert the course of, of the lava flow. But it's not like water. I mean, the lava, you know, it's, it's a rock that's flowing. It's very heavy. And, you know, in principle, if you could dig a big trench, you could divert it. But, you know, the engineering to do that would be, would be pretty significant and probably you wouldn't be able to do it in time. Professor of Physics, Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at the University of Alberta is Martin Unsworth. He's joining us now. And uh, Martin, before we let let you go, is this uh, anything to be panicked about if we're not in Guatemala, if we're not in Hawaii? This isn't the beginning of the end of the world, is it? Well, every time we have, you know, volcanic eruptions and earthquakes don't always occur, you know, in a, in a regular process. And sometimes we have nothing for a few months and then we have several at once. So I'm, I'm not particularly concerned that anything unusual is going on. All right. Martin Unsworth, Professor of Physics, Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at the University of Alberta. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. No, thank you very much. One, two, three. Trying to draw the correlation between a nine to five workday and our point in the day, just so I don't feel so bad about talking about what we're going to talk about. <laughs>
Well, if, we, if we're on our old schedule, I think for you were more 9 to 5, I was 10 to 6. Uh, but 4 a.m., 10 a.m., 6 hours. So add 6 hours to what we've got here. It's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> 5.30 in Newfoundland. Perfect. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Speaking of Newfoundland, we're going coast to coast with Canadian craft beers. One of our favorite topics, not just because it's beer. I want to make that perfectly clear because there is so many and there are so many different ways to enjoy beer and the different product that's being offered right now. It's absolutely terrific and it's made right here in our city and our province right across the country. And Manitoba Liquor Marts are once again doing the co- Coast to Coaster tour over the next month and a bit. And in studio to tell us about it, we have Aaron Alblas, who is a product ambassador for Manitoba Liquor Marts, joins us live on 680 CJOB. Aaron, welcome back. Thank you. Good morning. So this, uh, you've brought with you a selection, an assortment of beer. And uh, I guess, is this representative of the, the, the first flight, which is on from May 31st to a couple of days ago to June 13th? Yeah, exactly. I figure for some visual stimulation and also a chance to chat about what's in the first flight, that's what I would bring. Okay. Um, Coast to Coaster, craft beer promotion. Um, it's the fourth year named Coast to Coaster because there's a variety of styles from a variety of provinces and territory. I believe we have nine provinces and one territory represented this year. First flight started uh, last week, May 31st, runs until June 13th, Um, flight two, June 14th to the 27th, and so on. So every couple weeks, there's eight new beer, never before been in the province, that are being released for Manitobans. Oh, wow. Okay. You can find them at liquor marts, hotel beer vendors, and rural liquor vendors. Um, What I really like about the the program is it's, it's grown every year. Um, and with kind of that cultural craft beer growth that we've seen in the city and across Canada, you're really seeing a variety of, of summer style of beer. And I see that uh, throughout this promotion, you've got four uh, local beers that are involved. Who is in the first flight? Yeah, so each flight will have a local Manitoba brewery represented. Uh, the first flight is the Fort Gary Brewing Lemon Lager. Mm. Ooh, is that um, what this is? That's Yeah, I brought that for you guys to try. Well, um, I'm just going to smell it, uh, you know. I, yeah. I dare not taste it. No, no, sure. this is going down the hatch. Oh, so shoot, I spilled it into my mouth. It's a little taster. It's 5 o'clock somewhere. I know you said it might be 5.30 in Newfoundland or something mm-hmm. like that. Ooh, um, I like that. Yeah, you know what, all the styles. Jerry needs a sample, too. Oh, oh that's nice. I'll leave the can for and some cups for everyone else. <laughs> that is very nice, Aaron. It's nice that uh, our local breweries are, are producing such great product for, for Manitobans. Um, but what's really nice about this one, and it's kind of representative of the entire Coast to Coasters, it's, it's summer beer, right? And you kind of ask yourself, well, what is summer beer, right? Beer that's easy to drink, but this is summer craft beer, right? So it's got lots of flavor. And it has a hint of lemon, not quite a Radler style, which I think we've talked about in the past, that mm-hmm. is lower in alcohol and, and basically half juice. But it's got this nice citrus note to it. I could kind of see it, you know, on the dock, you know, perhaps lunchtime, you're on vacation uh, with like a grilled chicken salad type, something like that. Wow, Aaron, you paint a beautiful picture there. Uh, where is this lake? <laughs> <laughs> we have a few of them, I think, in Manitoba. Yeah, lots to so. choose from, right? Why do we yeah. associate summer or why do we need these lighter, more refreshing beers in the summer? Well, for example, if you have a darker style of beer, it might have more body and, and certain styles of beer will obviously have more alcohol um, and they're not just not quite as refreshing. So you'll notice if you look at the program, um, there's a passport that, that everyone can get either at uh, wherever these beers are sold for Coast to Coaster. Uh, you'll notice the styles are kind of lighter or more balanced and then you have a mix of kind of hoppy, which is that bitter flavor. 
um, flavored. So often, for example, there's going to be a gin lime beer in flight three. Uh, tart, which is something we could talk about. It's a, a growing in popularity, a tart style of beer. And then malty. So you don't really see anything here that's heavy and roasted, which would be kind of more your stout style. Not to say you can't drink those in the summer, but a polite way to talk about these beers would just say that they're sessionable, mm. uh, which means you can have more than one in a row without palate fatigue. <laughs> Obviously, we want people to drink responsibly. Yeah. But, you know, these are beer that you can have with your summer salad. It's not going to overpower the salad. It's not going to make you full and tired from just having the beer alone, right? So... Well, what I really like uh, about these uh, flight plans, if you like, and these passports that you're handing out is the fact that it does give you not only the name and the logo and the, you know, the brand that I'm going to be searching for in the brewery, but also tells me which province they're from. And fortunately, there's no Saskatchewan beers in this first flight, at least. We can take a look at the idea of of what type of beer to expect without necessarily tasting it, right? Not being uh, horrified to try something. Uh, there's a little bit of a clue here, and that, I think, goes a long way for folks. Yeah, we have something called Beer 101 in our stores, um, which will give you kind of that hint, exactly what you're talking about. And it's divided into three uh, bodies, light, balanced, and heavy, and then eight flavors. So it is a way to, you know, maybe try things that you know that you like if you're into hoppy beer. Um, but you'll notice if you look at the flights, there's kind of something for everyone in each flight. And even just talking about, you know, when would when you would enjoy these beers and how you would enjoy these beers, I think if you picked up, you know, the eight in flight one, flight two, flight three, flight four, there's something in there for you. And there might be something that you normally wouldn't buy that catches you off guard that you might really enjoy. It's like wine used to be, you know, uh, and is for a lot of people. It's that pairing. It's that idea of understanding what you like. And that's what I dig so much, Brett. And I've learned a lot of this from you with regard to beer about what I like and how to describe what I like. You've gotten really good at that. Well, <laughs> well you know what I did find? I found that stout. I normally don't like stout, but I tried it in a flight of beer and I found it paired well with pizza. How does that work? You know what? It's really what you you have to eat what you like to eat with what you like to drink. So I think sometimes when you have something that's outside of your comfort zone, um, like for example, maybe you don't drink gin and tonic, but in flight three, you've got this gin and lime pilsner from Fuggles and Warlock in BC and it catches you off guard. You're like, oh, wow. Like I actually well, like what this. was the name of the, the the brewery? So Fuggles and Warlock. <laughs> so named after hops and video games, which is it's pretty cool stuff. Uh, just got to quickly mention as well in Flight Two, Torque Brewing has the Magnetic North Hefeweizen. In Flight Three, Farmery Estate has the Endless Summer Lager, and then in Flight Number Four, which is runs uh, July twelfth to twenty fifth, Half Pints Brewing Company has. Codename Ghost New England IPA. Whoa. More details at liquormarts.ca. Aaron Alblast, Liquor Mart product ambassador. Thanks for telling us about this. This sounds like a lot of fun. I got to get to the store and uh, stock up. Sounds good. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks, Aaron. Our next guest was 34 years old, just shy of her 34th birthday, when she had a stroke. Now, she was a nurse at St. Boniface Hospital, and I got to tell you, I can only imagine what she's learned about herself, about her occupation in this experience. January 3rd, 1999, how did it all start, Heather Purvis? Well, I woke up about 6 o'clock in the morning. I had an unusual icy frontal headache, and I often didn't have headaches, but I had this experience of this sort of abnormally uh, intense headache. Up to the bathroom, came back to bed, and in true healthcare fashion was in complete denial that I was actually having a stroke, especially at that young age, because that's 
completely unexpected. What do you mean true healthcare fashion? Well, healthcare providers like to look after everyone else, but tend to ignore their own um, symptoms, their own issues, and tend to, especially at that young age, that was not something that was on my radar, even though I worked in the healthcare field, in in the heart, you know, heart care field. Um, so I got up, laid down on the couch for a little while, thinking that it would go away, and eventually came to the realization that it was not going to, and then had to activate 911 services at that time. How difficult was it for you to pick up the phone and call 911? Because not only were you, are you a healthcare provider, you're also a wife, and you were a mom at that time, and we know that that also, for whatever reason, the research says it, that when you're a, when you're a, a spouse and a mother, you put your own health concerns on the back burner. So it must have been really bad for you to pick up that phone. It really was, because at that point in time, my daughter was only two and a half years old. Um, um, so I was I was very lucky that, you know, actually my husband at the time was able to activate services quickly. It did take a bit of time. It was one of the coldest days in January, early January of 1999. So um, eventually we did get an ambulance um, to come by. But I mean... People, even the even the paramedics were like, "Well, can you walk to the to the stretcher?" Thinking that you know this has got to be something you know a lot milder than it actually was. And no, I wasn't able to. As as I waited for the ambulance, I could feel feel progressive weakness in my right leg and my right arm, and I knew that things were deteriorating quickly. So um, definitely, we we as women tend to not only um, have issues with um, uh, being able to to look after everyone else. Um, but, you know, looking after ourselves is is something that's uh, not on our radar typically, and especially at that young age. What is a stroke? What happens is, is that there's a clot that forms and basically breaks off and blocks an artery of the brain. And everything past that point in the brain actually starts to die. So brain tissue starts to die and it happens very quickly. So it's very important. The Heart and Stroke Foundation has put out the acronym FAST to make sure that we educate the public in terms of, you know, making sure if you're looking at someone that you're a little concerned that doesn't look quite right, making sure that they've not got a facial droop, making sure that uh, definitely that they're, if they put their arms above their head, if there's an unequal ability to to do that, if they've got, um, um, I'm trying to remember the other S, it's been... Uh, yeah, face, arm, f- face, arm, speech arm, and time. The speech, speech yes. yes. So the speech ability. So if you're if you're garbling your words and finally the time. And one of the things that really strikes me is at the bottom of that post and a lot of people don't read it, but I actually had an opportunity to go to the legislative building uh, the beginning of May to sort of launch this time to see red campaign. And it's got the quicker that you access this, the more of the person that you save. And that's an extremely important message. I've never heard it put quite like that. Yeah. You know, uh, you working in cardiac care for as long as you did, you know that time is muscle as it pertains to heart and heart attack. But boy, that is a very blunt way to put it all. And so I'm wondering why I haven't seen that more often because that, that is really hitting home with me. That's a powerful message. Yes, it finally, you know, I the FAST acronym has always hit home with me. And the commercials that Heart and Stroke had with regards to that that uh, campaign, but the, a big thing is is that actually, as you say, hit home to me was saving as much of the person as possible. And I was very lucky. I didn't have a traditional 
sort of stroke, a lot of times the arteries on the side of the neck, the carotid arteries are what get blocked and what causes, you know, the traditional strokes. Mine actually were two arteries in the back of my neck. And one of them was malformed at birth, which I didn't know. And the other one was um, much larger and compensating. So over the years, I had no idea that there was a problem. However, playing sports and everything I did as a, a youngster, if I'd ever got chopped across the back of the neck on my left side, there would have been there would have been problems. And I may not be here today to talk to you. Um, so there's still issues. I never had to have any surgery or anything. A small clot broke off. I actually had a car ride to the U.S. that I had come back from. I would had my head down. I'd fallen asleep. And at that point in time, that artery dissected or cracked and then a clot formed uh, the month after that, which broke off on January the 3rd and caused that, uh, caused that blockage of uh, blood to my brain in a certain area that resulted in the stroke. And the stroke actually took me two years almost to recover from. I had to learn to sit, to walk, to stand, everything again, because my balance where, where the stroke actually uh, affected me was in my area of balance. So it took me a long time. It was a really hard road to recover. Um, but I had lots of friends and family that were very, very dedicated. I give a shout out to to my parents who didn't expect they had just retired and didn't expect they'd be caring and helping a daughter out. So I give a great shout out to to them uh, for, for their assistance. We're hearing from our new friend, Heather Purvis. She suffered a stroke in 1999. She was 34 years old at the time. Bagpipes, one of your uh, loves in life, Heather. Yes, that's my other hobby, actually. I've and been doing it since I was eight, so I'm not going to tell you what that makes <laughs> me, how many years I've played, but uh, definitely it's been a while. Well, you were 34 in 1999, so we can probably do some math if we really want to. <laughs> we're slow on everything with the math, <laughs> I think I think we can do you, that one. That makes you 29 now, right? Absolutely. Yeah, we only go backwards now. <laughs> so what's the deal with the bagpipes and Paul McCartney? There's a connection there. Oh, well, I, back in 1993, when he was coming to Winnipeg at the stadium, just over a block where it used to be... Um, uh, a couple of girls in the Heather Bell Ladies Pipe Band and myself decided that we would like to play with uh, Paul McCartney. We didn't have money for tickets at that point, so we wrote to uh, Night Out Entertainment, and Kevin Donnelly was very kind to let us uh, meet up with uh, Sir Paul and play with him. So it was always touted as the worst-kept secret in Winnipeg because we, we had a week to prepare, uh, and we managed to pull it off. I had a great time. It was an awesome evening. Fun. So recovering from a stroke, we've discussed uh, the ordeal that you had and, and the fact that, that women are a higher risk of not surviving a stroke. In fact, one third more women will will die as a result of a stroke versus the number of men. Uh, are we learning enough? And, and you, you mentioned when we were off air that there are certain points in women's lives that, that, that women are more susceptible to stroke. Could you share that with our audience? Well, definitely. During pregnancy, um, there's definitely a, a higher risk of experiencing a stroke. And certainly if you've um, had, uh, you know, a problem with high blood pressure during your, during your pregnancy, there's actually a, a greater risk of uh, having a stroke during your lifetime. Um, also, <clears throat> excuse me, during menopause, if you're on hormone replacement therapy, that's also uh, increases your risk. And, and as you get older, and of course, there's, I'm sorry, guys, but women live 
longer than men. Yeah. And there's greater numbers of women out there that um, are experiencing stroke at an older age. They don't have people to care for them. They're ending up in personal care homes or or family or looking after them. So there's a great, um, there's sort of three sentinel periods in women's lives that, that this can be a, a, a real problem. So we have about 60 seconds left here. Um, one thing I did want to ask you, fast is face, is it drooping, arms, can you raise both, speech, is it slurred or jumbled, time to call 911 right away. But yours started with a headache. Right, and that's why it was sort of um, difficult to diagnose for physicians because I was young and I was unexpected uh, to have symptoms or to have you know, the experience of a stroke. I guess one of the biggest messages I can, I can put out to, to women and people in general about stroke is to make sure that you look after yourself. Um, and certainly looking after yourself means exercise regularly. I'm working on that. I've, I'm back at the refit center now that I'm done sort of raising my family. Now I can start looking after me. So I'm making that a, a real conscious effort. So I'm going to the refit now, um, making sure that you're on top of things or changes that are happening in your body. Again, I think you had a reference this morning to a 47-year-old uh, woman that ended up going to hospital and not realizing, you know, she was sent home because she right. also had a different type of a headache. But certainly do access medical care uh, as quickly as possible if something's really unusual for you, because that certainly can be uh, a problem. She is a patient representative at Cancer Care Manitoba. Hopefully you never meet her in that capacity. It's a wonderful to meet you in this capacity as a stroke survivor. Heather Purvis, thank you for your time this morning. Great to well, meet you. Thank you for having me in this morning. When that's the round table, three dots where we're able. We do routines to call the scene to put work in bed cable. We dine well here in Camelot. We eat ham and jam and spam a lot. Monty Python, I presume? Yes. Behind the glass, Jerry never ceases to amaze me where he goes. He's got these neurons and pathways in his brain that just take him down roads that Brett and I can, well, we're only joyful, but to join him as he travels down them. Mackley McGarry with you till 10 o'clock. Christian O'Mell in Hi. for Kelly Moore. I'm trying to figure out that connection. The, night, the Knights of the Round table? Is that or, that is? Yeah. yeah. Oh, right? Okay. Yes. Yeah. Right. I just want to say I was biking uh, down Portage yesterday and there's a sign like natural interiors, and it says an eye on it, and all I can think of is knee. I saw that. I saw that the knights who say knee. <laughs> well done. Well done. Uh, Christian O'Mel, older than he looks. He's an oh. old soul. Uh, I read on Twitter just this morning, uh, it looks as though the uh, painful struggle and the uh, drought uh, for and the quest for Lloyd Stanley's Cup for long-suffering Las Vegas Knight oh. fans will continue. Man. It's been a long go for them. They've really yep. earned yep. this. Yeah. Here's here's the thing. I feel for them. This initiation had to come at some point. The first playoff disappointment. And this is they're getting an initiation maybe quicker than they thought they would. But let's say that they lose Thursday night. This is what it feels like. The creeping realization of every year, oh, we're not winning the cup this year. Every fan is used to that in the NHL. And 99% of the time, you're not happy because your team doesn't win the cup. And very rarely does any team win the cup. And the Vegas Golden Knights, I mean, just look at the Capitals across the table. They've been around for close to 40 years. They've never come close. They've been to the cup once before this year. Didn't win a game against a Detroit team that was way better than them in the late 90s. 
And here they are, one win away. They've been the better team doing to Vegas what Vegas did to Winnipeg last round. And is it, how about Ovechkin? Because he was always kind of the, the runner-up, right, to Crosby. Uh-huh. Well, he was the the last ten years of Washington's history has been littered with disappointment, right? They've been President's Trophy winners n- numerous times. Ovechkin's won a number of regular season MVPs and Rocket Richard awards. He's put up great numbers, and in the playoffs, he's actually been pretty good. His numbers have been good. It's been his supporting cast that generally have let him down, but this year's different. You look back at the first round; they were down two nothing to Columbus. They were in double overtime in Game Three. And they get a fluky bounce that goes in to win that game. They come back to beat Columbus. They slay the Pittsburgh Dragon. They almost blow it against Tampa, but and normally the old teams would have, but then they get shutouts in game six and seven. Everything that would normally happen to a Washington team is getting bucked this year. And that includes now a 3-1 series lead, which the Washington Capitals franchise has blown more than any other team in the NHL. So that is going to be the big topic of conversation. I think that yep. is what Las Vegas fans are going to hold on to. That's what the media in Vegas... Deeply knowledgeable NHL fans. Yes, of course. Well, I mean, let's give them some credit. Yes. I mean, not all their fans are brand new to hockey. No, no, no. Many no. of them have been fans of other teams, have lived elsewhere, yeah. and uh, maybe lived in Las Vegas and just been hockey fans. I mean, what's not to love about hockey? But the question is going to remain, and I heard... Uh, was on PTI yesterday, uh, one of the two hosts suggested that until Alexander Ovechkin is carrying that Stanley Cup around the ice, whether it be at T-Mobile Arena or back in Washington, D.C., they will not believe that the Washington Capitals have what it takes to win a Stanley Cup. And why wouldn't you feel that way? There's a lot of sports teams you can say that with over the course of time. Chicago Cubs two years ago. No one's going to believe it's going to happen until the World Series championship has been won. They say that the entire season, right? Because the history of that team is littered with coming up short. And Washington is the exact same way. They've been the team in the NHL the last 10 years that have been the disappointment. And here they are, one win away. And it looks like, by all means, they're going to do it. They've been the better team. Vegas looks like Winnipeg did last round. They just don't have an answer. And goaltending's been a big part of that. You say that Washington has lost more... 3-1 leads than any other team it's in to NHL wa- history? Yeah, and it, Washington's blown five of them. Oh, my God. And no other team's done that. Now, this isn't the same team. It happened in 2015. That was the most recent one. But every year is different. And when it comes to these results, past failures don't necessarily mean that it's going to happen in the future. But there's definitely been a weight on this fan base that has been lifted this postseason. You could feel it after the Pittsburgh series where all of a sudden they realized, you know what? The crushing weight of expectations aren't here anymore. We beat Pittsburgh. We did it. That doesn't mean that everything after that is gravy. I think it almost made it easier for them to rally when they fell behind against Tampa Bay or they lose game one in Vegas and they come out with the last three games completely dominating Vegas, I think. He's uh, doing the sports this morning uh, for Kelly Moore. I guess you've done that chore now. Well, I got no, oh, Sunday not. morning. Sunday morning. I got twelve uh, twenty-five to do, and I oh. write the afternoon newscast oh, or sportscast. Okay. Come on, well, don't fine. sell me short. All right, not trying to sell you short. <laughs> Hosts uh, Sports Sunday, and you know, Mark Andre Fleury was a big part of that barrier for the Capitals getting past the Pittsburgh Penguins. So that's really not been the factor. I mean, you're mentioning that that Vegas is having done to them what the Jets had done to them in the last round. Yeah. 
yeah. I think that came out right. Yeah. Uh, but the loss, I mean, Marc-Andre Fleury was the difference in the Western Conference final. He's the difference in this uh, Stanley Cup final, but for a different reason. Right. So it doesn't all fall on the goaltender, but in the way that we were saying Connor Hellebuck wasn't coming up with the big saves when Fleury was, it's the same thing in this case. Braden Holpe has been fantastic for the Washington Capitals, and Fleury hasn't been great. Six goals last night. There's been some weird bounces, some bad rebounds. The kind of the, the kind of which no, I'm not. I'm not excusing Flurry. I'm saying he's been playing in a no, way. I'm just saying that, that the Vegas got a majority of those silly bounces in that series against the Jets. Are you bitter? I'm not bitter. Just it's fact. It's fact. Okay, but right? you're not. You're not bitter about no, watching Flurry suddenly not be at not all. good. No, being average now, all of a sudden, no. All Jets fans are just very comfortable with the way this has all gone down. So you, right? you'd rather now be beaten six two by the Capitals instead of sitting and watching it at home. Well, I think it would have been, yeah, we can debate that off air about how the Jets would have done about Washington. doesn't really matter. Washington was the team of destiny. I've been convinced of that since, I don't know, the second round. And we've been focusing on the West because of Winnipeg and Vegas. Sure. But the way they've, like I've said, overcome all these hurdles that in the past have let them down. It's been, it's been their story, and it looks like they're maybe two days away from having that storybook ending. Can they get that 3-1 series monkey off their back? Yep, and they will. They've been getting every monkey off their back so far, and this is the final one, and they're going to do it. Washington will win the Stanley Cup. Are they going to do it? uh, But they have three days off? Yeah, Thursday. So the way it works when they have a travel day in the Stanley Cup final, they give them an extra day. So Game 5 is Thursday. Game 6 would be Sunday, and then Game 7 would be Wednesday. So if it goes the distance, it's going to be a long buildup of anxiety for Washington between all these games. Well, is that game going to be on Canada Day, Game 7? I'm just trying to do the math on it's that. It's actually August. It's a long weekend in August. <laughs> Christian O'Mel, thanks for this. Appreciate you no dissecting problem. what we're seeing, what we may see, and uh, also doing a little bit of therapy at the same time for beleaguered Jets fans who cannot get over the fact that, uh, th- that, that this team uh, beat the Winnipeg Jets in the Western Conference Final. Uh, really quick okay southeast division the old southeast division three of the final four teams in this year's stanley cup playoffs Mm -hmm. former southeast division teams washington winnipeg tampa a little bit of trivia thrashers yeah uh, no 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 the jets were actually in the southeast that's true they were that was right two seasons that was really stupid christian yeah it was thanks christian christian (laughs) o'mel crawl out of here as you crawled in You asked me earlier about, uh, am I making a prediction? Well, you just heard the prediction. Christian O'Mell saying the clock will strike midnight for the Vegas Golden Knights, courtesy of the Washington Capitals in the North American Ice Hockey League Championships. Said that so calmly. Yeah, I was trying something different. I like it. It's like when Vanner Wright used to say, he's going deep over the wall in left field. <laughs> Instead of, over the left field, That's right. I'm Brett. He's Greg. Behind the glass, Jerry and Tristan Field-Jones in for Shanley today on 680 CJOB.